Section 32 of The Wars of the Roses by Robert Balmain Mowat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 22 The Work of Edward IV. The House of Lancaster fell because it failed to govern the kingdom and to keep order. The claim of the House of York was accepted as being likely to lead to peace, order, regular administration. Such peace and order were found on the whole under the Tudor monarchs. Did the House of York, in its short period of power, give firm governance too? The great historian of the English Constitution answers this question in the negative. England found no sounder governance under Edward IV than under Henry VI. The court was led by favourites, justice was perverted, strength was pitted against weakness, riots, robberies, forcible entries were prevalent as before. The House of York failed, as the House of Lancaster had failed, to justify its existence by wise administration. Yet although much unconstitutional conduct can be imputed to the House of York, it is not so easy to find instances of weak or incompetent administration. If attention be concentrated on the reign of Edward IV, it will be found to be, in the last twelve years, a reign of comparative peace and prosperity, as indeed was the reign of his brother Richard, the turmoil in whose mind did not much disturb the even life of his subjects. The reign of Edward IV must be divided into two periods. The first is from his accession as king on March 4, 1461, to October 1470, when he had to fly to Flanders, leaving King Henry VI to enjoy a brief period of restoration at the hands of the Earl of Warwick. The second period is from April 1471, when Edward once more and finally regained his kingdom to his death at Westminster on April 9, 1483. It is during this first period that there is found the lack of governance which Bishop Stubbs applies to the whole reign. During the second period, peaceful, if not constitutional, government was certainly found. It is unnecessary to repeat again the story of the years 1461 to 1470, the troubled years of Edward IV, when the Lancastrian party was still strong in the north and the west of England, when the northern castles still held out, and the Scottish army was frequently in occupation of portions of the English soil. The young and inexperienced King Edward, fresh from the rough life of the camp, with the too powerful Neville family as his chief support, was not in a position to put an end to all the ills which had been felt under his predecessor. So the country remained unsettled in all the remoter parts, and a number of disturbances took place culminating in the rising of Robin of Reedsdale. The plot of the Earl of Warwick was successful. King Edward had to flee the country. Far different was the state of affairs after the battles of Barnet and Tewkesbury, when he was once more re-established in his kingdom. The Lancastrian line was extinct. The House of Neville was laid low. King Edward had learned much from his exile. Instead of the careless soldier depicted by de Comines, he was now the prudent monarch of the new school which was rising in Western Europe on the ruins of feudalism to embody the independence of the national states. 
Edward the Fourth, like Louis the Eleventh, belonged to that new monarchy whose raison d'être and whose philosophy of life had been laid down forever by Machiavelli and the Prince. Edward had learned by his mistakes and his misfortunes. He was resolved never again to go upon his travels. His strong, if ruthless, rule gave England that internal order and that external independence which all nations demand for their sovereign governments. This, too, was the service of the early Tudor kings. They were autocrats, ruling with the approval of the country, subject to certain limitations implied by this approval. Edward IV was a monarch of the same sort. He laid down the lines along which the Tudors followed, not consciously indeed, but because the conditions of the age demanded that policy from any monarch who would keep his throne. Six distinct ways may be noted in which Edward IV directed his energy for the governing of England. He strengthened the administration of the law. He encouraged the rise of a new nobility, personally attached to the crown. He kept the expenditure and the revenue of the government at a low but adequate figure. He summoned few parliaments. He conducted the affairs of England abroad peacefully with a backing of armed force, but mainly by a clever diplomacy. He encouraged trade and commerce by all the means then known to the crown. In these ways, King Edward is a good type of the new monarchy. The Tudors trod in his paths. It was necessary for the law courts to show great firmness if the local disorder which had been such an evil under the Lancastrians was to be suppressed. Edward's methods were arbitrary, calculated to put down disturbers of the peace, but without sufficient regard to those broad and general principles of justice which are the safeguard of personal liberty when the executive government grows strong. The great danger from King Edward's policy was that the executive exercised influence over the judiciary. This was an undoubted evil which has always to be guarded against, but at the same time it had the effect of suppressing disorder. The times were rough and required rough measures. The ordinary law of the land had been emptied of most of its force under Henry the Sixth. Edward the Fourth used special tribunals which would not feel the territorial influence of disturbers of the peace. Such a tribunal was the court of the High Constable, which under the administration of John Tiptoff, Earl of Worcester, became notorious for its severity. In a patent of 1462, King Edward authorized Tiptoff to hear all charges of high treason and to decide them, even summarily, plainly without noise, and show of judgment on simple inspection of the fact. But the great butcher of England was killed in 1470, and by that time the court of the High Constable had done most of its bloody work. From 1471 to the end of his reign, executions were infrequent. The trial of Clarence in 1478 was a public scandal, but few felt regret at his fate. The worst feature in the legal history of the time was the use of torture. Even if this was begun under Henry VI, Edward IV would not stand excused. Yet it is in the earlier unsettled period, up to 1470, that instances of the use of torture occur. The law did not err on the side of weakness. 
only in the more remote districts of england can it be shown that the practice of livery and maintenance still went on but even here the yorkist kings anticipated the tudor reforms edward the fourth set up the council of wales a prerogative council with special powers to deal out summary justice on the disturbed welsh march this court which had much the same constitution and scope of action as the more famous council of the north established in fourteen thirty seven lasted through the tudor period until the long parliament abolished it in sixteen forty one the royal progress in fourteen eighty four of richard the third in the north parts is another instance of the interest of the yorkist kings in preserving order in the most turbulent districts of england he seems to have accomplished much and in the north of england he was certainly strong in the affections of the people the council of wales was not the only way in which edward the fourth anticipated the legal system of the tudors the court of star chamber often ascribed to the act of three henry the seventh sat in king edward's reign being a convenient means of enforcing order when the local courts were weak or the king's subjects too strong every monarch gathers round him an aristocracy to support his position and to supply him with administrators and governors edward the fourth used such of the old nobility as had been faithful to his house and he drew upon the class of gentry for a new nobility to be faithful to the crown which had conferred its rank the woodvilles although a lancastrian family were tied to the crown by the marriage of the king edward gave them his confidence and they proved worthy of it they were a new family when he distinguished them but through the great marriages which he arranged they soon numbered no less than eight peerages another family the herberts were raised to the earldom of pembroke there had been a barony in the Berkshire family under the lancastrians but edward the fourth raised their status and multiplied their titles they became one of the capable official families of the yorkist and the tudor periods the nobility under the yorkists assumed more and more the character which it bore later in the sixteenth century the great quasi-royal houses like the beauforts and the hollands became extinct the crown benefited by the addition of forfeited lands the rest of the nobility took a lower position with a sufficient degree of equality among themselves to prevent particular houses raising factions to divide the kingdom light taxation and moderate expenditure were characteristics of the new monarchy whether yorkists or tudor the lancastrians had failed to live of their own edward the fourth managed better his expenditure was not high his demands for financial help from parliament were infrequent without any rise in the rate of contribution the receipts from customs although they fluctuated considerably automatically increased as commerce developed the crown lands augmented by forfeitures from nobles attainted in the wars of the roses brought in larger sums than formerly extraordinary revenue was raised by the outrageous levying of benevolences which falling as they did upon a comparatively few wealthy people seemed to have been received without unpopularity in the country as a whole the subsidy and the pension received from louis the eleventh by the terms of the treaty of pekingy in fourteen seventy five further added to the royal treasure and relieved the finances of the government edward's private trading ventures were another source of wealth 
the total revenue including the french pension was not high being between the years fourteen seventy two and fourteen eighty three of an average amount of ninety five thousand pounds gross yet king edward made this suffice he left at his death a considerable fortune his borrowing excluding benevolences was on a moderate scale the total amount of loans not paid off at the end of his reign being calculated at twenty nine thousand pounds there is no modern government of any standing whose loan capital is only one-third of its revenue in his economical administration edward the fourth was like henry the seventh and elizabeth this characteristic of yorkists and tudors was by no means unpopular with the country king edward summoned few parliaments throughout his reign and his record of legislation is mainly on the subject of commerce in fourteen sixty five the king had been voted tonnage and poundage for life except for the abortive war with france in fourteen seventy five he had seldom again to apply to the estates for money throughout his long reign of twenty-one years only six separate parliaments were summoned their sessions were short and the work they were called on to do was quickly finished sometimes years passed without any parliament meeting there was none between may fourteen sixty eight and october fourteen seventy two between fourteen seventy five and fourteen eighty three the sitting of parliament occupied only forty-two days it has been said that the reign of edward the fourth is the first in english history in which no statute was passed to increase the liberty of the subject but the country acquiesced in the abeyance of parliament for what the people wanted was a cessation from civil turmoil so that commerce and ordinary occupations might go on uninterrupted henry the seventh adopted the same attitude toward parliament practically all his useful legislation was done in the early years of his reign the people were getting orderly government and for the time they were contented in foreign affairs edward the fourth anticipated the policy of henry the seventh the less blood he drew the more he took of treasure each monarch took a great military expedition to france and each returned home with financial subventions in lieu of military honours henry the seventh's treaty of etaples in 1492 much resembled edward the fourth's treaty of piquigny in 1475 both monarchs pursued a policy of peace abroad they turned their back on the hundred years war with all its hopeless ideals they thought no more of a realm across the channel they recognized that england was an island kingdom and that her genius lay in commerce and on the sea in foreign affairs they were content to play a part not with campaigns and battles like the medieval kings but by diplomacy and treaties england had by nature a commanding position she dominated the great maritime highway that lay from flanders to the bay of biscay and led on to spain and the mediterranean the alliance of england was equally valuable to flanders to france and to spain england courted on every side had no need at this period to enter into expensive foreign wars she could rise to greatness again without embroiling herself in europe this was clearly understood by edward the fourth by henry the seventh by wolsey by elizabeth they spent little of england's treasure or her men on the fields of europe 
so that the energy of her people took other directions, at home in England and abroad, along the paths of the sea. In their strong support of commerce, Edward IV and Henry VII were alike. The new monarchy was indeed a sort of bourgeois monarchy, popular with all citizens, careful of the peace, careful of national defence, taking a personal interest in all affairs of trade. The great benefit conferred by Edward IV on English commerce was the renewal of the connection with Flanders and Burgundy. The Dukes of Burgundy had been the allies of England in the middle period of the Hundred Years' War, from 1415 to 1435. But in 1435 Duke Philip had made peace with Charles VII of France, and thereafter the English connection was broken off. The Burgundian domains included Flanders, so that the loss of the alliance had a bad effect on the export of wool from England to that flourishing country. Calais itself was in continual danger of being taken by the Duke. But with the accession of Edward IV, the Flemish connection was gradually renewed. The marriage of Edward's sister Margaret with Duke Charles the Bold in 1468 made the link stronger. It had been preceded in the same year by a treaty guaranteeing freedom of commercial intercourse between England and Flanders for thirty years. This connection was a great asset for England. The accession of Henry VII interrupted good relations for a time, as Margaret, the dowager Duchess of Burgundy, naturally kept her Yorkist predilections. But at length the energetic and persistent diplomacy of Henry VII was crowned with success. With the Treaty of the Great Intercourse in 1496, the Flemish commercial connection was once more renewed to the great joy of the English merchants. Edward IV died on April 9, 1483, in his 41st year, after a ten days' illness. He had a low fever, which he is said to have contracted originally in the French expedition of 1475, and which was now much aggravated by dissipation. Philippe de Comines describes him as being in his youth the most beautiful man of his time, but afterwards he grew very corpulent. Clearly, however, he had a gift for ruling, and thoroughly understood his people's temper. For this reason, he is to be classed as a successful monarch, under whom England prospered. End of section 32